The following is a conversation between Ambassador Marianne Peters, Chief Executive Officer of the Carter Center, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. The Carter Center is guided by a commitment to human rights and the alleviation of human suffering. The center seeks to prevent and resolve conflicts, enhance freedom and democracy, and improve health. Much of what they do is directly or indirectly impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. And here to discuss that with us is Ambassador Mary Ann Peters, the Chief Executive Officer of the Carter Center. Welcome to the Business of Giving, Mary Ann. Thank you. It's great to be here, Denver. Let's start by having you share with us some of the history of the Carter Center and the mission and goals of the organization. I'd be delighted. President and Mrs. Carter founded the center in 1982 after, as President Carter likes to say, he was involuntarily retired from his job in Washington. (laughs) (laughs) And it was initially founded to work on conflict resolution and peace. But very early on, President Carter became interested in global health issues, and he's always regarded access to basic health care as a basic human right. So the Carter Center has evolved over time based on two pillars, peace and health. And under peace, we have a number of different areas of activity. One is, of course, human rights, which really inspires everything we do. One is peace and conflict resolution itself, because all other human aspirations fly out the window in a war zone. Another is rule of law, and one with which I know you're familiar is democracy, including encouraging elections around the world by observing them and working with election officials. So we've grown a bit since 1982. We have our own campus in Atlanta, but the values are the same, and I'll just quickly go over those. President and Mrs. Carter, probably because they come from a small village themselves, have a deep and abiding respect for the people who live in villages at the end of the road. And most of the people we deal with are in Africa. They believe that those people are as smart as we are, that they love their kids just as much. And that informs the Carter Center's work in a fundamental way. And then like everybody else, I hope, we stress action and measurable results. We like to fill vacuums and avoid duplicating the effective efforts of others. And we like to take on difficult problems in difficult situations. But as a result of that, we recognize the necessity for rigorous analysis and the recognition that failure is actually an acceptable risk. We like to be there on the cutting edge doing what others can't do. And finally, the center is nonpartisan. I know everybody knows, and it's absolutely true, that President and Mrs. Carter are bright blue. But Mm -hmm. we all believe... I believe with my soul that the values of the Carter Center and the compassion that informs our work are reflective of Americans across the political spectrum. That's the Carter Center in a nutshell, Denver. There you go. That's a great set of values. So, you know, if I may, I wanted to touch on five topics, Marianne, that are related to the work that the center does that have been or could be significantly impacted by the coronavirus. And I'm going to start with a could be. And that's the presidential election. You know, with this pandemic, there could be real serious impediments to holding safe, secure, and inclusive elections come November. What is the Carter Center advocating as a way to address that issue? We are more expert, to tell you the truth, in observing elections than we are 
involved in actually the U.S. It's hard actually for an organization run by a president from one party to be nonpartisan in this context. However, what we're trying to do is take the lessons that the Carter Center has learned from observing at least 109 elections, maybe it's 110 now, around the world since the early 90s when we pioneered this field of work. And President Carter, as you probably saw, made a brief statement last week about the idea that voting by mail should not be eliminated. Mm -hmm. The risks that can be associated with it were mentioned in a bipartisan report he and former Secretary of State Jim Baker did about 15 years ago. But that report was selectively quoted. And I think he wanted to set the record straight because now that we're facing a pandemic, everything has to be looked at in light of the risks of running an election as if we weren't, which is quite risky. So the Carter Center is also looking at a number of other very special parts of the American electoral process on which we have, we believe, some real expertise based on our overseas experience. And one is something we call, well, we, everybody else calls it participatory rights. And that includes violence against women in elections. We haven't really started doing this yet, but you'll find in any country, and that's from poor African countries to the United States and Europe, that women who run for office are often subjected to abuse, actual Mm -hmm. physical abuse, violence, and certainly a great deal of internet abuse. So that's one area where we hope, again, to bring this expertise from overseas to the U.S. context to to help our country navigate what I think we all agree is not only a, a health crisis, but a particularly acute era of political polarization. Yeah, that's for sure. The second area, Marianne, is mental health. And we're paying so much attention to physical health and the economic fallout from this pandemic. But the mental health issues that are sure to arise, and I'm sure that a lot of them have arisen already, is just not getting the attention that it deserves. I know that the Carter Center for Mental Health program is one of the leading in the country. Tell us about what you're seeing and some of the initiatives that you're undertaking. I would love to. First of all, I want to emphasize that while President Carter has had a number of causes during his career, many of them, I'd say, under the rubric of human rights, Mrs. Carter has had really only one. Mm -hmm. She has been an advocate and a proponent for better mental health care and for reducing the stigma around mental health for almost 50 years. In fact, I think it is 50 years this year because her work on this began when President Carter was elected as governor of Georgia in 1970. Uh, So she has a real expertise and a real voice and That's the basis of the Carter Center's mental health program. And that's the program where we have the biggest footprint in the United States, because we do work in Georgia and we have a national voice, thanks to Mrs. Carter on that. We also, however, have done some work in one country in Africa, Liberia, and I'll talk in a minute about the lessons we learned when we were working on Ebola in Liberia that we're using now that COVID-19 is a problem there and everywhere. But just more generally, the goal of our program right now is to put the need for mental health awareness and mental health care on the front page, on the first page, in the top two or three bullets that everybody includes. So right up there with wash your hands, take care of your mental health, be aware of what can happen under these circumstances, 
be aware of the dangers of isolation, anxiety, and grief, and what you can do to help. Because people are becoming increasingly aware of the importance of mental health, but I think it's often still addressed separately. The head of our program, Dr. Eve Bird, as I said, wants it to be on page one, right under, or maybe above, wash your hands. Mm-hmm. Don't touch yeah. this. So that's our goal, and we're working to get that message out and related very specific messages out. We're working with a new organization in Georgia called the Global Health Crisis Coordination Center on that. And as I said, in Liberia, we have a great experience that we are packaging to share with other countries in Africa. And this experience dates back to 2014 when Liberia was one of the three countries in West Africa that had a terrible Ebola outbreak. And Mm -hmm. after that, we launched a program to train clinicians to deal with the children and adolescents who had been so horribly affected by, well, in many cases, seeing their parents die. And it was just awful. We also found in Liberia that it's not only the message that matters, and I'd like to talk about that later, but it's who delivers the message. Yeah, sure. Yeah, early on in Ebola, many of the people in rural areas did not believe that they could get Ebola from following traditional burial practices. But in fact, that was in fact a main method of transmission. But the people have no reason to trust the government, frankly, Mm -hmm. these rural villages. So it wasn't until actually the Carter Center pulled together a group of traditional chieftains whom we'd known for many years and asked them to transmit the messages that I think people in these villages started to believe them. So our mental health program is, as I said, packaging the lessons from Ebola, particularly around the need for a trusted messenger and an appropriate message. Mm -hmm. Is it ethical? Is it compassionate to put a poster up in a village saying you have to wash your hands with soap and water if there is no clean water and absolutely no soap in the village? And these are things people need to come to grips with. And because we have such deep roots in these local communities, I think we can help. I do too. A lot of lessons there that you can share and pass on and use in a different context. The third thing, which you alluded to in the opening, is human rights and how that can play out here in this COVID-19 pandemic. You know, you're going to find some authoritarian leaders with the attitude, do not let a good crisis go to waste. And they are going to use this in ways that are unseemly. Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing around the world in that regard. We're already seeing that, Denver, as you know. I mentioned to you earlier that more than 50 countries and territories have postponed elections because of the crisis. But some of the elections that have been held are equally worrisome. The countries, maybe there are about 19 or 20 that have held elections but without the proper number of poll workers, with some polls closed, Mm -hmm. with very low turnout, which of course reduces the credibility of the election and of the entire electoral system. So first of all, on the elections front, authoritarian regimes are already moving into this space. As you say, they're not gonna waste this opportunity, but that's not the only thing. We're seeing emergency measures, Mm -hmm. some of them justified, and we're seeing essential freedoms eroded unnecessarily. And one of the problems is that the actions are taken outside of the law. The actions that are being taken might actually be reasonable, but we're seeing some of these regimes 
possibly even probably deliberately taking these actions without reference to the appropriate constitutional or legal process to take them. And so they're not anchored in any way. And of course, the other clue that there is an agenda besides just fighting the virus is that some of these emergency measures are not time bound. So they're open ended. And of course, the truth is there's always a security argument for keeping something like that in effect. And it's very difficult to be the one to pull the plug on a security measure. So we also want to see these kinds of emergency measures proportional. And some of them clearly, as you know, are not proportional to the threat of the virus, particularly in some of the countries where we're seeing these kind of anti-democratic measures moving ahead of the actual threat. Yeah, yeah. I think of things like surveillance. And maybe it's necessary, maybe it's not. But you have this instinct in some of these countries that that surveillance is never going away. On a lot of these things, it will become permanent. I have to interject. Even before the COVID-19 crisis, we're seeing and we're living a wave of increasing authoritarianism. So I think we have to be particularly mindful of the fact that COVID is exacerbating a worrying trend we already saw. Mm-hmm. Another worrying trend that you talked about earlier, particularly in the context of female candidates running for office, is gender-based violence. And I know there's a significant amount of concern in the international community about what's going to happen in this particular case when you have women sheltered in place, no way to escape, nowhere to go. What are you seeing in that regard? You couldn't be more right about that. Sadly, I've seen a report that at least 90 countries have already reported spikes in domestic abuse, abuse of women and children almost entirely. But that's not actually the only way in which women are disproportionately disadvantaged by the pandemic. Women actually tend to lose economic security faster and to Mm -hmm. a greater degree. They're likely to be involved in the informal market. They may sell things by the roadside, things like that. And they, of course, absolutely have no safety net. And women, it turns out, are about 70% of the global frontline workers against the pandemic. Also, women bear a greater share of the burden of caring for those who need care at this time, whether it's your own kids, someone else's kids, or your ill uncle. And then I just read this recently, and that is that women, because they are less likely to own cell phones and they're less Mm -hmm. likely to have internet access, they are at a disadvantage because they're less likely to get the information they need. And that exacerbates what's already a gap in access to information for women. But on the human rights side, as I said, all of these things conspire But the most acute crisis is the domestic violence crisis. And we are actually working with a network of religious leaders in West Africa, in Ghana, to help them prioritize preventing domestic violence. We're starting a radio program, for instance, on how religious leaders can prevent domestic violence. That's great. Let me ask you another question about women, because I have been really impressed at the women leaders during this crisis. And I think if you take a look at countries like Germany or New Zealand or Iceland or Finland, all with women leaders, they have fared, relatively speaking, exceptionally well. They acted quickly. They acted decisively. And their plans were really well executed. Speak about women's leadership in a time of crisis. 
Well, as you might guess, I agree with you completely. <laughs> yes, I, I did guess. <laughs> yes. Um, and I also think we can look to some of our governors as examples of women who are leading in this crisis. I think there are a number of explanations for this. One, I think, is the trope. It's a bit of a trope, but I think it still has a grain of truth that women are more collaborative leaders mm -hmm. and that they tend to listen a little more. And when you're dealing with a subject on which you are not personally an expert, listening is absolutely key. Instead of just deciding what your view of the world, how your view of the world dictates, you might want to act. So I do think that's a strength that women leaders have. I think Angela Merkel is just great. And she just has so much experience making decisions that I think she might be an outlier in, in that sense. <laughs> yeah. you know? She is you exceptional. She, she, uh, she also explains why very well. Yeah. If you're asking people to take an action, tell them why, and they're a lot more likely to follow the, the directive. I agree. And I think if you tell people that you are experiencing the same thing, Mm -hmm. They are also a lot more likely to follow and respect you. So I think there are a number of reasons. I think that, and this may be way off base, but I think that the need to take quick decisions when the health of your family or your whole country's families is at stake is something that's for a long time really been in the, in the bailiwick of women's actions. For a long time, that kind of quick decision-making has been the role of the mom if your sure. child is suddenly bleeding. So I think there's an instinct to prioritize health as well and to understand the negative consequences. But as I said, I think it really gets down to listening and then being unafraid to take the quick action that you would take if your child were bleeding. Absolutely. Men sometimes tend to be overconfident and don't need that <laughs> advice. And women seek it. And you're right. If I scrape my knee at school, I'm calling mom. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's automatically. So with 100% of everybody's attention on COVID-19, boy, there are a lot of other issues that are just not getting any attention now. Issues that were at the top of everyone's list two, three months ago. Is there anything else that you would include in that bucket that the Carter Center is working on right now that you're trying to keep an eye on and focus your energies on in addition to this pandemic? There are some things, but I'd also like to add one aspect of the pandemic that we are focused on, and it's relevant to our mission and values that I described earlier, and that is the perhaps unanticipated corollary impacts of the measures necessary to contain coronavirus. Mm -hmm. a, a great example is malaria. The International Malaria Day was April 25th. If you worked where I work, you'd know that was a very big deal. Yeah. <laughs> malaria Day. But there's great concern in the malaria community that half million or more people could die unnecessarily of malaria because they can't get the treatment they need and that many of these could be children. So one of the things we're looking at is whether we might be able to step in to repurpose some of our quite extensive networks and logistical supply chains to provide some help to interventions on malaria should countries reach the point where they are not able to continue to provide that care. But I, I think the numbers are staggering and malaria is always ready to rear its ugly head. So no question. Uh, so that's one thing I wanted to raise. And you mentioned earlier mental health. Of course, there are liable to be deaths related to mental illness as well from the stress of this disease. But as far as other things that we're doing, I would say that 
what's really important is peace and conflict resolution, which we are doing in places like Sudan, Mali, Syria. As I said, we like difficult problems. Mm, <laughs> and we can stick with them, exactly. But it's very difficult to fight a microbe when you can't get where you need to go because there are people with guns who are gonna shoot you. You can't do contact tracing. We saw this in the Eastern Congo during the Ebola outbreak there, which has since tapered off much too long. And the reason, in my view, is because it's a war zone and it's very, very difficult to fight a disease in a war zone. So I think the importance of conflict resolution should be highlighted in terms of being able to fight a comprehensive fight against the virus. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's pretty much along the lines of those authoritarian leaders you spoke of a moment ago. When the world is looking elsewhere, what a perfect time to take advantage under the radar and do things that the world would be outraged by otherwise, but no one's looking. And that is always the case. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So what have you found, Marianne, to be the keys to being an effective leader in a crisis? I would say that listening is absolutely critical because you need more ideas in a crisis. I would also say that you have to earn trust to be ready to lead in a crisis. I have a friend who's a futurist who recently said that for most of her career, the quality in shortest supply was time. With the highest demand and the lowest, actually limited supply was time. Mm -hmm but that she believes that it's now trust that is the luxury good par excellence because we are seeing how important trust is and we're feeling acutely the lack of trust in our institutions and in our leaders all around the world and, and here as well. So I would say that becoming a trusted voice before you need to be trusted is one of the other things you need besides listening. And then I think that you need empathy. You have to put yourself in other people's shoes. It's been a while since I had kids at home, but some people are trying to work from home yeah. and educate their kids and give them lunch and everything else. And that can turn into an awfully long day. And the final thing I would say is, you know what? There are people who are dealing every day with life and death issues. And some of the ones we deal with are but not all of them. And therefore, I think it's important to prioritize the well-being of your people and to be seen to do that. Mm -hmm. Finally, Marianne, traumatic events like this, boy, do they present an endless series of challenges, but they also provide opportunities for societies to evolve and reset. What opportunities do you see as you look out toward the future? Since joining the Carter Center, I've become a real advocate for global public health. And I'm a real fan of this band of zealots who are in fact the global public health experts. Anthony uh, Fauci is one, but I'm privileged to work with others. And they are really wonderful people who, who work from the heart. And as I said, the zealots in the best sense. One of the things that has been on their minds for many years goes by the name of health system strengthening. And that's providing basic health care all around the world. Now, clearly, there is a self-interest there as well. Let's mm -hmm. be honest. This is one sure. of those cases where what's good and ethical is also smart for us. And we can call it forward defense. We can call it whatever we want. But this has been something on the minds of my global public health zealot friends for a long time. And I think we should take this opportunity to get serious about what's known as HHS, health system strengthening, because it will 
provide two bulwarks against the next pandemic. One is a healthier world population, so better able to withstand whatever may come. And the second, of course, is early warning for them and for us. So I would say that health system strengthening, which has been on the global public health agenda for a long time, should be on everybody's agenda. And then, of course, I believe deeply in empowering women and girls. And I also think that the time for integrating mental health fully in the rest of our health has come. And that will be another so-called silver lining. Absolutely. I can't ever understand when people go to the doctor, they're not being asked about it. It doesn't make any sense. It does not. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I know how terribly busy you are, Marianne, and I just want to let you know how grateful I am to you for making the time to share this information and these insights with us. It was a real delight. Thanks so much. Thank you, Denver. My pleasure.